0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: Alan Dorfman ran an insurance agency for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He was also known in the criminal underworld of Chicago as the Mafia's Banker. One of the most powerful middlemen between prominent Union figures and the Mafia. Alan Dorfman was the, was the man that got things done, the power broker. Dorfman wasn't your typical monster. His weapon of choice wasn't a gun, but the stroke of a pen. Dorfman
3: was a white collar type thug.
2: He had no real scruples or morals. His crime? an elaborate conspiracy to raid a billion-dollar pension fund for his Mafia bosses. The pension fund was a gold mine. And as the Mafia's banker, he financed their huge casinos in Las Vegas. He was a very powerful associate because he made money for them. In this audio boom original series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and the people who were actually there. This is Mafia. Alan Dorfman was a promising young man. Tall and athletic, he had enlisted in the Marines after college to fight in World War II— But four years later, after returning to America as a decorated war hero, he was working in a a $4,000-a-year job teaching physical education at the University of Illinois and going nowhere. Or at least, that's what it felt like. It simply wasn't enough for the young and ambitious Dorfman. He wanted more. Much more. Luckily, he was close to someone who could fix him up. His stepfather, Paul Red Dorfman. Red was a tough old school Chicago mobster. His power base was the growing trade union movement, including the mighty Teamsters Union. By 1953, with 1.2 million members working in transport nationwide, a Teamsters strike could paralyze the whole of the United States. The mob liked what the Teamsters had. Real muscle. One ambitious Teamster named Jimmy Hoffa wanted to be president of the powerful union. And Red Dorfman agreed to help him get there.
4: If you want to be elected to the president of the Teamsters, you have to enter into political alliances, political in the sense of internal union politics, with mob figures.
2: Robert Blakey was a special attorney in the Department of Justice from 1960 to 1964.
4: So Jimmy Hoffa in league with the mob uh, nationally and also his union in Detroit he got the presidency of the union through corrupt deals political deals with the mob and there's a the Irish have a saying when you sup with the devil you should have a long spoon uh, and, and Jimmy hands were dirty he had met these people in worked with them.
2: Former FBI agent Jim Wagner.
5: There was a a lot of intelligence information that Hoffa had made accommodations with organized crime in order to rise to the power that he developed. Hoffa was very popular with the Teamster members. They didn't understand that he had sold them out on many levels. In return
2: for supporting Hoffa, Red Dorfman wanted something back, a job for his son. He thought Allen should run the Teamsters' extremely lucrative insurance business. It didn't matter that Alan Dorfman had no financial qualifications or any insurance experience. At the time, he didn't even have an office. Such was the power of the mob that Dorfman hastily set up an insurance agency and got the contract. And Hoffa and Dorfman formed an unlikely alliance. John Siegenthaler, former editor of the newspaper, The Tennessean. I thought Hoffa looked
6: at Dorfman as somebody who had a law degree, uh, who understood the underworld, uh, and who would cut a deal. Uh, You know, each needed the other at times for some special purpose that benefited one or both of
2: them. The Teamsters' employers now paid Dorfman's agency an insurance premium for every union member. And so for the new insurance executive, the good times began to roll.
0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Auto Parts
2: Douglas Roller was the attorney in charge of the Chicago Strike Force between 1978 and 1984.
0: He had very expensive clothes. Um, I remember uh, during the course of the trial, he wore what was clearly a very expensive camel hair coat. He uh, drove expensive cars. He had a, a very nice house in Lincolnwood. Um, He uh, went out to eat at fancy restaurants. Um, He did all the other things that one would expect one to do who had plenty of cash to spend. The deal
2: worked out well for both sides. Over the next decade, Alan Dorfman became a millionaire, and Jimmy Hoffa rose fast in the Teamsters' union with the mob's backing. But there was a dark cloud on the horizon. In 1957, the United States Senate formed the McClellan Committee to investigate the unholy alliance of organized crime and the labor movement. Government agents quickly discovered that Dorfman had made $3 million from insurance policies, half of it by wildly overcharging on premiums. But high insurance fees weren't illegal. Then, investigators found that Dorfman had siphoned off over $300,000 for unspecified expenses, and that Hoffa had been lent cash that was never returned. Now, they had hard evidence. Jimmy Hoffa was summoned to explain the unspecified expenses. The committee's legal counsel was Robert F. Kennedy. John Siegenthaler was a young reporter at the time of the hearing.
6: I always felt it was sort of an eagle thing with Jimmy. Um, if you look at his appearances before the McClellan, McClellan Committee questioned by Robert Kennedy, uh, two things emerge. The first comes across how smart Hoffa is. His first appearance was a disaster. Second, he improved. The third, um, he just was completely confident. He was not going to answer any questions, was not going to take the Fifth Amendment, uh, and he was just going to challenge Robert Kennedy to, on anything that Kennedy said. And uh, he would say, well, that's your idea, that's your thought. That's, and he'd totally ignore whatever evidence there was that he had this mob relationship. And Bob would ask him specific questions about... Um, about those relationships, and, and Jimmy just simply refused to answer them. He evaded the answer. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't respond. He did respond, but he responded without answering the question, without admitting anything or acknowledging anything. And when Kennedy would uh, give him evidence, Jimmy would just have his own explanation of what had transpired. Um, and. And that explanation would be his denial, not a direct denial, but just he would give a different version of what happened. And that third appearance before that committee, um, he was an expert witness. He had trained himself. He had a keen mind and a tough mind. And to see the two of them, Jimmy Hoffer and Robert Kennedy, engage in that, those three sessions before that committee, uh, I mean, it was like theater. It was drama. Uh, it was gripping, and, um, and, uh, and it was a struggle, and even though Jimmy improved with each appearance, you came away with it with a clean idea uh, that Hoffa and the union were linked to organized crime and the mob.
2: The committee strongly suspected that stolen cash was being used for illegal payoffs and kickbacks to union officials, but they were never able to prove it. Hoffa and Dorfman were free to exploit the wealthy Teamsters' union on an unprecedented scale. Although the insurance business was lucrative for Dorfman, it was dwarfed by the possibilities of the vast Teamsters' pension fund. Millions of dollars in union workers' contributions from around the country poured in every month.
6: I think Dorfman sort of looked on the pension fund uh, as his preserve. And he kept in close touch with Hoffa when he needed him. I always thought with with Dorfman it was only uh, money. It was only self-enrichment, and he looked at Hoffa uh, as a as a bread and butter, or better still, as a cake and ice cream uh, friend. And uh, I think I think he needed the the uh, the union. Uh, he needed access to that pension fund. Here is former FBI special agent Leonie
2: Flossy.
3: Teamsters especially, the pension fund, was a gold mine. It was the goose that laid the golden egg, right? Once they get their hooks into you, they, they don't want to let go uh, because they're making money on you.
2: The question was where to invest all this money. Alan Dorfman helped Hoffa loan tens of millions of dollars of Teamster pension funds to just one client, the mob. That's how the Central States Pension Fund earned the nickname the Mafia Bank. And what did the gangsters do with all these millions? They headed for the Nevada desert to build casino hotels in Las Vegas. Former Las Vegas police commander Kent Clifford.
3: Originally, the
2: town town was built
3: on mob money. The first casino out here, the Flamingo Hotel was built by the mob. As we grew, as the the community grew and as the Strip grew, because there was a lot of land out there that could be developed, okay? Not all of it was mob money. Most of it was.
2: The Stardust, the Fremont, and the Desert Inn were all funded by multi-million dollar loans from the Teamsters Pension Fund. And in the 1960s, these casinos were owned and controlled by the Mafia. They were making a ton of cash with their new business in the Nevada desert. Crime author, Thomas Rapetto.
7: Well, there was a lot of money made in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, gambling joints make money. And they got, a, they got a, the money skimmed by their people and delivered to bosses in Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee. But Chicago got the, got the lion's share it was nice. You sit in Chicago, you have nothing to do with Las Vegas, and somebody brings you a bag with $50,000 in it every month or so.
2: And the man who was bankrolling the good times was none other than Alan Dorfman.
0: He engineered, by and large, the mob's influence in the Las Vegas casinos and the purchase of those casinos with the hidden interests of the various mobsters.
2: Former FBI agent Jim Wagner explains further.
5: Pension funds do invest their money uh, provided by the salaries of the members, and they are supposed to utilize those investments to make additional money. They have a fiduciary responsibility, the trustees, to make sure that they're giving out loans to people or investing with people uh, who have the wherewithal and ability to repay those loans.
2: Hoffa and Dorfman approved 60 loans totaling a mammoth $91 million, with notably favorable terms for the mob.
5: Uh, The people who got the loans did not have to pledge any collateral, did not have to have the normal background checks that a bank would have conducted before giving million-dollar loans, multi-million-dollar loans.
2: There was a reason for this lax lending policy. Every time they approved a loan, up to 10% was taken as a kickback by Hoffa and Dorfman.
3: Alan Dorfman arranged a lot of loans. He took a fee on every one of them. A kickback
7: is if I let a contract to you for a million dollars, you kick back $100,000 to me of that contract for giving you the contract. Now you're going to put in your bid if you want to put up a building, and it would cost with your profit 900,000 to put it up, but you've got to give me a hundred thousand, you make your bid a million dollars.: Hoffa and Dorfman got their kickback, and they didn't
2: seem to care if the Teamsters ever saw their money again. Then, on January 20th, 1961. John F. Kennedy was sworn in as the 35th President of the United States.
1: Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance, north and south, east and west, that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind? Will you join in that historic effort?
2: And with the new government in control came the return of an old enemy of the mob, Robert Kennedy. The president's brother was appointed U.S. Attorney General. As the top law enforcement officer in America, Kennedy's stated goal was to break the grip of organized crime. He set about radically changing the Department of Justice and the FBI. Kennedy launched a new kind of investigative unit, a Department of Justice strike force aimed at union corruption. And Kennedy dramatically increased the number of lawyers in the organized crime and racketeering section from 17 to 63. One unit was very much at the forefront
4: of the campaign. Here is Robert Blakey. Bobby Kennedy came in knowing about a particular crime problem that only the federal government could do something about. And he brought a bunch of people up from New York that had worked in New York and put them all in the section. I was a member of that section. There were 17 people in it. A unit was put in it to finish criminally what he started just investigating it. It was called the Labor Rights Unit. And I was in it. And the press called it the Get Hoffa Unit.
2: But getting Hoffa wouldn't be easy. In October 1962, the new investigative unit prosecuted Hoffa, alleging he'd received improper payments from a trucking company. Hoffa, a powerful manipulator used to getting his own way,
4: couldn't leave the verdict to chance. And Hoffa didn't want to accept a jury verdict. He made an effort to fix the jury. he'd accepted the jury verdict, he would have been found not guilty, and it would have been potentially a major victory for him. Instead, he had to fix the jury, and he got caught fixing the jury in that's obstruction of justice, and then he was convicted. It was a lucky break for the prosecution.
2: What would have been a maximum one-year sentence suddenly grew a whole lot bigger. Hoffa's mob-style jury tampering had backfired spectacularly. (laughs) Outside
3: the district court building in the nation's capital, Teamster boss James Hoffa surrenders to U.S. Marshals to begin serving an eight-year prison term for jury tampering.
2: Before going to jail, Hoffa announced, "Allen speaks for me on all pension fund questions. This was the opportunity for Dorfman to gain even more control over the Teamster's pension fund. He now managed a vast $400 million mountain of money. Here's Doug Roller describing Dorfman's powerful position.
0: Yeah, the title of CEO of Crime, Inc. would be a good description um, uh, of Dorfman, or perhaps a better one would be chief financial officer uh, of the mob. No, I don't think anybody could have taken his place, I think, or could have done what he did because he had the skills and the character and the the Black of morality, to
2: do what was necessary for the mob. But Dorfman wasn't allowed complete control of the pension fund. The Chicago Outfit decided to safeguard their mafia bank. They gave Dorfman an advisor named Joey the Clown Lombardo, former FBI agent Jim Wagner.
5: The Outfit did not trust Alan Dorfman and therefore placed Lombardo in the position that he had, which was an overseer.
2: Joey the Clown Lombardo was a serious mobster. He may have earned his name joking around, but he was a shrewd businessman and a killer.
0: I don't think Lombardo respected anyone. Um, I think he had a grudging respect for Dorfman for what he could do. Uh, but Joe Lombardo liked Joe Lombardo, and that was about the extent of the people he liked.
2: It was Lombardo who oversaw the Las Vegas casinos, and although he had no official position, he now oversaw Alan Dorfman, too.
5: He did show up on almost a daily basis to find out exactly what Dorfman was doing and to provide, it almost appeared, guidance to direct Dorfman to make sure that he did as the outfit wanted him to do.
2: Lombardo was a respected figure among gangsters and feared by Dorfman.
0: That's the one person you don't hear uh, Dorfman arguing much with.
5: He never gave an outward comment to Joe Lombardo that he disrespected him. That would not have been the wisest thing for him to have done. But he did believe that he was smarter than Mr. Lombardo.
2: Surprisingly, the two men got along well. With Lombardo's backing, Dorfman approved million-dollar loans designed to dispense cash directly into mob hands. Former special FBI agent Leo Flossie.
3: It was no secret that he was in the pocket of organized crime. He was a tool of the Chicago outfit. They controlled Dorfman.
2: It didn't seem to matter that a string of businesses which the Teamsters' pension fund invested in went bust, and millions of dollars were effectively stolen in the process.
3: Dorfman was a white-collar-type thug. Uh, he controlled money. Uh, Dorfman would never be involved in a burglary or an armed robbery or, or, a, or an extortion. That's not what he did. Uh, he was a different kind of criminal.
2: Defaulted loans to one businessman alone cost the pension fund $15 million. But Dorfman couldn't care less. He was paid thousands in kickbacks on every deal. In fact, business was so good, he bought himself a private jet from none other than Frank Sinatra. But the FBI was on the prowl. And in October of 1972, they pounced. A court in Chicago heard how businessman Leo Horvath had applied for a teamster's loan of $1.5 million. He personally paid Dorfman a $55,000 kickback in cash. And two days later, Allen approved the loan. At last, this scam was exposed, and Dorfman was found guilty of fraud. Yet surprisingly, The trial judge only sentenced Dorfman to one year in federal prison. Far from being a blow to his career, it hardly even broke his stride. Doug Roller, former attorney at the Chicago Strike Force.
0: In my opinion, Dorfman was a tough guy. Um, He went and did his time, although it wasn't that long, he did his time in the uh, 1972 fraud conviction, Uh, Didn't rat on anyone, which probably enhanced his reputation with the mob at that time. Uh, And he did his thing and came out and kept on going.
2: Dorfman's looting of the Teamsters' pension fund didn't merely continue uninterrupted. It shifted into high gear. Between 1972 and 1976, he approved $186 million in loans, financing the mob's development of Las Vegas casinos, $20 $20 million went to Caesars Palace alone. $23 million to Circus Circus. And the kickback to Dorfman? 7% of Circus Circus Corporation shares, potentially worth millions. But the FBI hadn't given up on Dorfman. More than ever, they were determined to bring him down for good. Finally, in 1974... They collected enough evidence to charge Dorfman and Lombardo with milking the pension fund of $1.4 million. The key witness for the prosecution was businessman Daniel Seifert, who'd been collaborating with the feds. If Seifert testified, Lombardo and Dorfman were both going down. The mafia didn't think twice. Here's former FBI agent Jim Wagner again.
5: This whole case was another example of the problems chicago faced as well as other sections of the country in bringing to court um, cases against some of the organized crime people because they had no hesitation of eliminating witnesses if it would keep them out of court
2: on september 27 1974 daniel seifert went to his office to meet his wife They were assaulted by two armed men. Mrs. Seifert was pushed at gunpoint into a washroom. Seifert made a run for it as the men opened fire. The first shotgun blast failed to stop him. But a second blast to the chest brought him down. Finally, to leave no doubt, Daniel Seifert was shot at point-blank range. As Seifert collapsed, so did the court case. Lombardo and Dorfman walked free. Again. It was clear to the Department of Justice and the FBI that Joe Lombardo and the Chicago Outfit would stop at nothing to keep their money man and the Mafia Bank in business. In the next episode will reveal how the FBI launched a vast surveillance operation to go after the man who'd been bankrolling the Chicago mob for over two decades, and finally shut off the steady supply of cash to the mafia. If we penetrated
0: Dorfman and, and his uh, contacts, then that would open up uh, avenues of prosecution and evidence-gathering as to the mob, uh, corrupt Teamsters officials, uh, corrupt uh, public officials.
2: We'll speak to the lawmen who were part of Operation Penford, the code name given to the covert operation to bring down Dorfman.
0: The best evidence you can use in court is the defendant's own words. Uh, if you're lucky enough to have video surveillance, too.
2: And we'll discover that no one was safe from the mob, not even the people that helped bankroll their million-dollar business interests.
0: We felt he would be vulnerable, to an offer to diminish his prison sentence in return for his cooperation, um, never got that far because uh, the mob was thinking the same thing.
2: This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz, with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zibingwa. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Indochino for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.